morning. I trust you had a good Thanksgiving. Got a uh, bit of good news for you. I read that uh, on average, Americans only gain 0.9 tenths of a pound between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Can you believe that? Nine tenths of a pound. And I have even better news. I've already gained three pounds. So that means two of you don't have to gain anything this year. So this ought to work really well. But actually, Thanksgiving is this uh, big family event, isn't it? It's a time when most people travel to try to get together with families. For some people, that's the wonder of the season. For some, it's the difficulty, actually, because families don't always work so well. And then Thanksgiving has become the gateway for Christmas. In fact, as you know, the merchants are pushing and pushing and pushing to try to get shopping to start sooner and sooner. So that, of course, Black Friday now has to start Thursday afternoon or evening, doesn't it? Very interesting phenomenon. I think the merchants would be very glad if we could kind of just do away with Thanksgiving and go right from Halloween, which they figured out how to get us to shop, right into the Christmas season. But as a church, we're entering into a season we call Advent. In fact, today is referred to by some Anglicans as Stir Up Sunday. The Book of Common Prayer, 1549 offered this prayer. Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may of thee be plenteously rewarded. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now this is actually a very cool prayer. Just asking for God to help us be fruitful in good works knowing that a reward comes from that, which is kind of what Paul's talking about this morning. But actually, even back in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, when they used to have Stir Up Sunday, it became a cliche to remind the cooks to start their Christmas puddings. Because it takes about a month for some of those things to set. Some of those fruitcakes, some of you would know about that. And uh, know what? we're happy in my family not to have a fruitcake for Christmas, so just so you're wondering. But the idea that we could take something that's sacred and make it something that is materialistic, consumeristic, uh, another process, is so much a part of the human condition. And so I want you to see if you can't hear something from Paul this morning that will help you to keep the main thing, the main thing, this Advent season. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of coming together to worship, to be in your presence, to know that your spirit is here, ministering to us. We thank you for that. We thank you for each one who has come and the way we can minister to one another. And we thank you for the gift of your word. And Father, we are asking that you would take your word and in a fresh way speak to our hearts today for your kingdom's sake and for the glory of your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been studying 2 Peter. And uh, last week we were in chapter 2. The first seven verses, Paul makes this case for how he wants Timothy to stay the course. Paul's in jail. Paul's writing his sort of last will and testament to this mentee he loved so much. And he's telling him what he needs to do to keep on keeping on. And he says, basically, be strong in the grace that's in Christ. Root everything in Christ, Paul says to Timothy. And then he says, and you take this precious gospel and you share it with others who will be able to share it with others also. It's the way of the kingdom of God. And then he says in Timothy, endure hardship. Because there's going to be people rejecting you just like they rejected Christ. It's the way of the kingdom's clashing. But don't give up. And so we looked at that, and Paul actually gave three examples, you might remember. He talked about being like a soldier, so focused, so disciplined. 
like the farmer working so diligently to get the fruit of his crops, to get that reward to it crumb, or like the athlete uh, who stays focused and obeys the rules. And I came across this example this week of someone who stays focused as an athlete. Kim Rhodes, I don't know if that's a household name for you guys or not, but she personifies an athlete who has learned to stay focused and to persevere. She won a gold medal in skeet shooting at the Summer Olympics in London this year, which is in itself a phenomenal thing. She did it while hitting 99 of 100 targets, which set an Olympic record, um, and she won first place by about 8 or 9 score. What's even more remarkable, this is the fifth World Olympics that she has gotten a medal in, dating back all the way to 96. No other American has ever done that, gotten a medal in five consecutive Olympic Games. And so it's pretty remarkable what Kim has accomplished. And you might say, she must be very gifted, have this natural talent, no question about it. But listen to how she practices. Kim shoots 500 to 1,000 rounds a day. Now you think about that. I don't know what her shoulder must be like. But uh, this is a shotgun we're talking about, which would have a pretty good kick. And she shoots 500 to 1,000 rounds a day. I'd have to say, if she were here this morning, I'd be nice to her. (laughs) Because uh, somebody that can shoot the way she shoots needs some respect. But I just want us to remember, Paul's talking about this kind of endurance and perseverance and focus when he's writing to Timothy. He said, there's a big, big game going on, the game that's most important. If people would do this for an Olympic medal, what should we do when eternal things, eternal things are at stake? Stay focused, Timothy. So join with me here in verse 8 of chapter 2. This is so precious. Paul's writing to this friend, Timothy, and remember, this is going through that connection of their relationship together in Christ. And he's already said, stay rooted in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. So here in these few short expressions, we have some very rich meat. He starts by saying, remember Jesus. Jesus Christ. Well, no, wait a minute, Paul, you're in jail. I'm out here in Ephesus trying to preach. We preach about Jesus all the time. You've been talking about Jesus already. Why do you come back to this point and say, remember Jesus Christ? Because you know what? Because it's our tendency not to keep the main thing the main thing. We are people of distraction. And even Timothy was. He was prone to worry and prone to considering what it was costing, maybe considering pulling back. And the answer wasn't just for Paul to say, buck up, Timothy, do the right thing. No, the answer was, Timothy, stay focused on Jesus. Remember Jesus. That's the heart and soul of this matter. He had already told him in the first chapter, verse 8, not to be ashamed to testify about the Lord. But in this case, he wants him to stay focused on who he is. And I will say, some people might think about Paul, because Paul is even willing to use himself as an example. Follow my example, he says to Timothy. And he's going to say, share and join in my sufferings, Timothy. But he always goes back that this is a key thing of someone who is a, a true disciple of Christ. They don't point people to themselves ultimately. They're always pointing people to Jesus. Come back and focus on Jesus. Remember Jesus. That's what Paul's calling him for. What's it mean to remember It means to focus or to meditate. Uh, Basically, Paul had this understanding about the battle that's going on for our minds. He said in Romans 12, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, you can imagine this. 
Paul said that in a day and age when there was no television, there was no radio, there were no iPod downcasts, there was no website to eat up 14 hours a day of your time, right? All the things that distract us, that keep us from remembering Jesus Christ. Now, is Jesus less significant because we don't remember him? All these songs that we were singing this morning. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He came as he promised the first time, and he's coming again as returning king, just like he said. But whether we keep that in focus or not is up to us, not up to him. That is to say, he's going to be faithful to do his part. What do we do? And Paul said, I'm telling you, the battle happens in your mind. If you want to have a better Advent season, if you want to have a breakaway from some of the materialism and the busyness and the barrenness that happens in the Christmas season, remember Jesus Christ. Meditate on him. Focus on him. Make some space in your life that's quiet, which is pretty hard to do, isn't it? Because in our cars we have noise, in our homes we have noise, in our offices we often have noise. We live and move in this noisy environment. Quiet things down and remember Jesus. Paul points out, this is the Jesus I'm talking about, the one that was raised from the dead. You guys know what? No other religion has a leader who was raised from the dead, who died and came back, who conquered death and sin and hell. No other religion. The Muslims don't have a leader who came back from the dead. There's about a billion Muslims, but their leader died and stayed dead. The Hindus have 3,000 gods, but they don't have a god who died and came back from the dead. Scientology and Eastern mysticism, all the other religions that are perking people's attention because they sound interesting or new or a different way to look at things, none of them have someone who raised from the dead. So Paul's in jail and he's suffering. But he says, hey, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And I tell you this morning, if this isn't true, you know what Paul would say to us, get out of church, right? Don't hang around. Don't mess around. If the resurrection isn't true, we're wasting our time. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. That would be true unless there was life after death and unless Jesus conquered death through the resurrection, which is true. And so this guy in jail who saw the risen Christ, he says, hey, Timothy, remember Jesus, the resurrected one. And that's a really important word for us this morning. The resurrection of Jesus changed some very ordinary fishermen and tax collectors into a band of brothers who changed the world. The resurrection stumped the Jews and the Romans, but they could not disprove it. They could not come up with the body of a dead Jesus. As much as they would have loved to get those disciples to quit talking about the risen Lord, they could not do it. The resurrection is the greatest historical fact that is the anchor of our faith. These ordinary people gave their lives so that we could know sitting here this morning, it's true, Jesus is alive. The resurrection happened. And so it is the basis of our faith. But even more than that, you know what it means? It means that Jesus is alive to have a relationship with us right now. Jesus is alive this morning. Jesus is seated in the heavenly places. As we're singing, we are lifting up his name. And I think it brings joy to his heart when we do that. But you have to know Jesus is also in this place by the Holy Spirit. 
touching us, bringing us together to be the body, to focus on loving one another as we together love him. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today, as one song says. And that's such a rich truth. And it, doesn't, it does come in occasionally to some of the Christmas music. If you listen to Christmas music, you know, about every so many songs, you'll hear something about Jesus. But most of it's all this other noise. Paul's in jail, and it's not very distracting being in jail, apart from the pain and discomfort. And in the midst of that, he said, oh, focus on the resurrected one. It's a big deal. And then he throws out this other cliche. He says, you know, I'm talking about the Jesus who was descended from David. What's the big deal about that? Remember who Paul was. Paul was this Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a well-trained, well-educated Jew. And in some ways, he turned his back on all things that came from his Jewish traditions in order to embrace Christ. But there is a, there's a root that goes down in his Jewish faith that he held on to. Because, you see, it was through Israel that God provided a Savior for the world. And God had told Abraham 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Paul lived, that he was going, when he had no kids, that he was going to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham. And then a thousand years later, he told King David, who had some family issues himself. I think Thanksgiving was complicated at David's house. You know, when your son's trying to kill you and you got all those wives to sort out. I mean, some of you had to do two or three turkeys. I don't know what it was like at David's house, but I bet it was rough, right? But God told him, David wanted to build a house to worship God. He said, oh, I'm living in a really nice house now, God, and you're living in a tent. You should let me build you a nice house. And basically, God said, I've been living in a tent since I brought you guys up out of Egypt. It's okay, David. It's not for you to build me a house. But here's a promise I'll make to you, David. I know that it's typical for kings to have a lot of trouble. You had trouble with Saul. He tried to take your life. Your sons, you can't even figure out how to raise them. One of them tried to kill you. But here's what I'm promising, David. You will have an heir. And your heir will sit on your throne. And he will rule forever. Now, that's an unheard of promise. It's ridiculous. Any king thinking that he can have an heir that's going to rule forever, that he'll never have power taken out of his hands. Look at the world today and the change in power that we have going on. The guy that just got to be in charge in Egypt is about to lose his job. I mean, it's not a settled thing, but God told David, you're going to have an heir and he's going to rule forever. And so Paul's reminding Timothy while he's in jail, hey, you know what? This promise-keeping God we have is about keeping his promises. He made a promise to Abraham, and he kept it. And he made a promise to David, and he kept it. And as we're entering into this Advent season, that whole Israeli history is supposed to be a strong encouragement to us, to the trustworthiness of God, and to who Jesus is and what he did. And so as we hear these stories again about this child born in Bethlehem, the city of David, it should ring in our hearts and say, oh, yes, God has done everything he said he was going to do. That's what we celebrate with the first Advent. And you know what? We also, as we're experiencing Advent, look forward to the soon return of Christ. Because God is going to keep that promise too. And that's what Paul knew when he was sitting in that jail. And he told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, who is of the line of David. All that was wrapped up in that message and is meant to encourage our hearts as well. Well, then he says, uh, this is my gospel, this Jesus who 
lived and died and rose again. And because of that gospel, I'm suffering. He says in verse 9, This is my gospel for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. And so we see a couple of things here. For one thing, Paul is suffering. I mean, it was brutal, the jail he was in. Paul was a world-class sufferer. He had been beaten, stoned, and left for dead, shipwrecked, imprisoned many times. Uh, But even at the heart of this, besides all the physical abuse he put up, all the risks he took, he was on trial for his life when he wrote this letter. Besides all that, he says, I'm chained like a criminal. And this gives us a little insight. Here's this guy who had been a proud Pharisee, leader among the Jews, well-educated, and uh, used to getting respect. And he had laid that aside to follow Jesus and say, Jesus is my king, and I'm going to make Jesus known, and I'm going to proclaim him. And what did it earn, Paul, instead of the respect that he got for being a Pharisee, instead of all the accolades he got from people, it earned him a jail cell and treatment like a criminal and being treated with no respect, no dignity, no comfort, no encouragement. Most people abandoned him. Even people that named the name of Christ abandoned Paul. So he says, this is what I get for my following after Christ. Um, Perhaps the biggest price Paul paid was his humiliation. And, And yet, catch this. So he's in that jail. He's chained up like a criminal, like an animal. And he says, but you know what I've learned? I'm chained, but the gospel is not. I'm in chains. They've got me here. Satan probably is real happy that I'm in this jail and I can't be out preaching the truth. But just when he wrote the whole letter of Philippians, don't worry if I'm in jail, guys, because it's like, it's like there's a fire and people are trying to stomp it out and all it's doing is making the sparks fly and it's catching other fires. Paul lived to see that the gospel was making progress and then his role, even in suffering, like Jesus had suffered, only furthered the purpose of the gospel. So what about us? You know, the American mindset, I'd say it's pretty much true of human nature, but especially of us, is that we don't want to suffer We don't want to even be uncomfortable. We certainly don't want anything to to challenge or put at risk our security. We'll work pretty hard to keep those two things going, won't we? Comfort and security. And Paul said, you know what? I looked at that. I had that. And I put that all aside to put in my cause with the cause of Christ. Because Christ wins. He said, I've read the end of the story. I know where this thing is going. And I am on the winning side. They got me chained in prison, but they can't chain the word of God. They can't chain the gospel. They can't stop people from hearing about Christ. You're pretty aware, I assume, of how many people have tried to do this through history. The communists have tried. They they made it illegal to have a Bible, to name the name of Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ, to encourage someone else to believe. Muslims are doing the same thing right now. You can lose your life in some countries for leaving your faith and following Christ like Paul did. But can they stop the gospel? They cannot. They cannot chain the word of God. It is growing even this morning. This Advent season, as we focus on the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, and remember that he's coming again, there'll be people all over the globe that will be hearing the gospel for the first time and replacing their trust in Christ. And basically, what Paul's telling Timothy, hey, you're invited to get in on this. You don't have to be a bystander. You don't have to just read about it. You can participate. That's why you should endure, Timothy. 
That's why you need to persevere. Because this is what God is doing. And you can be part of the game God is playing. It's a wonderful thing. The gospel is not chained. And then Paul basically said that I do this. um, Verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, this would be a place where I could jump off into a very interesting theological discussion about what election is, which would take more than the 10 minutes that we have remaining, so I'll put you at ease here. It's a really important doctrine, something that the Bible does teach, but that's not why Paul's bringing it into this story here to help us understand what election is. He's just saying, the reason you should endure, Timothy, as a soldier of the cross, as a messenger carrying the gospel is because God is in the business of saving people. God has elected people. He said earlier that before the foundations of the world, he has chosen people. Jesus said, you know, I'm going to basically call people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell are not going to stop me. And so Paul said, I'm telling you, Timothy, we can't lose. Because God is at work here. God is electing people. So you're thinking about who to share with within your family, at work, within your neighborhood. And you might think, oh, how winsome can I be? I better read up on the best way to make a really good argument and answer every question they might have. And if you get into that mindset, you're thinking that you're the one that saves people. That's not how it works. God saves people. It's just that he's given us the gospel. And the gospel, as Brad read for us from Romans 1, is the power of God unto salvation. And so this argument that Paul's making about election is he's saying, why should I be quiet? Because I know God is calling people to himself and I just get to be part of the play that he's writing. And I don't want to miss my part. I want to do my part. It's a privilege to have a part. But God is the writer and God is the one that's making things happen. And I I trust that this encourages you like I think it should In the sense that, okay, so that takes a weight off of me. Yes, I need to be faithful. I need to be someone who is not ashamed of the gospel. What we were just singing earlier today is so important. And yet, it's not just a matter of what you do. It's a matter of resting in the fact that God is doing his part, which is saving people. And letting people hear the truth from you is also just an instrument in God's hand. So this part here of election is really good. And then he says that they may obtain salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And again, from our perspective, Paul's suffering so much was ridiculous. I mean, honestly, if we knew somebody that was taking these kind of risks, and all they needed to do was back off from their religion, we'd probably say, back off. It's not worth it because life is so precious, and being comfortable and secure is so important. And Paul would look us right back in the eye and say, don't you know, haven't you read the wisdom literature? We all die. That's how the story ends. Our days are like grass. We grow up and we wither and we fade away. But Paul says, I have a chance during my brief time to do something that's going to last forever. That's going to be about eternal glory. Sharing the gospel with people and seeing them come from death to life. I'm not missing on that action. And so who's right and who's wrong and who's a fool, really? We who makes so much of being comfortable and secure, or Paul, who said, I put that aside, that I might know Christ and serve him for an eternal glory. I think he's trying to tell us something about how to flavor our Advent, our Christmas season. Make the main thing 
the main thing. Well, um, there's another uh, uh, expression here that goes into a poem, which is a little bit complicated, but I'll expose you to this. That starts in verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And I'll have to share with you that this is a complicated passage that commentators disagree about the meaning of. The first two lines are very easy. If we died with him, we will live with him. Paul makes that argument. And he means we die when we come to faith, when we put down our life and take up the life of Christ. It's a picture that we have that's recorded for us in Scripture of baptism, to be acknowledging or identifying with the death of Christ, that we might live with Christ and live in Christ. And then he says, if we endure, which he's calling Timothy to do, if we endure, we will reign with him. Paul had some big ideas. Those Romans had him locked in a jail cell. And Paul's plan was to reign with Jesus. When Jesus was coming back to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Paul was planning to be there with him, reigning. And he said, so yeah, you got me chained now, pal. This is your turn. My turn's coming when I'm going to come back and reign. I'm going to endure because I'm going to get to reign with Jesus. That was the hope and the picture that Paul had. But then he also said in this poem, if we disown him, he will disown us. And this isn't to say that somebody could lose their salvation. Again, he's, Paul's very aware of election. He taught us about the fact that God does this work of salvation that saves us for eternity. But he is saying people that reject the gospel are going to pay the ultimate price. If we disown Jesus, if we say, nope, following Jesus is too much, I'm much more interested in taking care of myself. If we disown him, he will disown us. Jesus said the very same thing. People reject me, I will reject them before the Father. And that's an important part of our evangelistic message as well. There are consequences. We don't just invite people to know Jesus so they can have life a little better right now. We invite people to let Jesus be king so that they can not stand before him as judge. And if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. This is where some people think it means that even as a Christian, if I struggle and sin, God will be faithful. We know that's true. We know that he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. But I tend to agree with the commentators who think this is a second acknowledgement of people who never had a living faith and basically are faithless. And God, some will say now, I think God's going to let everybody in heaven. I think actually that he's so full of love, he's not really going to judge anybody because actually that would be too hard. And I think this verse is saying, you know what, God is going to be faithful to his holiness and his righteousness and his word. And he said if people reject Christ, he will reject them. There's a heaviness in this picture. So, how are you going to go about remembering Jesus this Advent season? What will your family do? What will you do personally to try to practice what Paul is calling for Timothy to do? The Advent that we celebrate here, which we start next Sunday, is about remembering Christ's first appearance in keeping with all the promises God gave through Abraham, through David, through the prophets like Isaiah, while anticipating his second appearance appearance. We want to ask God to help us make this year more a focus on Christ than all the other stuff that happens in Christmas. So I'm going to pray this prayer that actually is the stir-up prayer. 
that we mentioned at the beginning of the passage. And then I'll uh, close with another section of prayer. So pray with me. Father, we ask that you would stir us up. We beseech you. We ask that you would stir the wills of thy faithful people, that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may of thee be plenteously rewarded through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we ask that you would stir our hearts to adore your Son, Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, the soon-coming King. Father, we ask that you would stir our minds so that we understand what we really should be thankful for while grasping the truth that nothing compares with the gift you've given us in Christ. Father, stir our passion for remembering the resurrected Christ and his promised return so that we will also persevere and endure in making the gospel known in our families, at work, here in Pittsburgh, and even around the world. Oh, Father, help us to remember Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.